The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before I, obviously this morning's uh, topic has to do with our work and the meaning of our work, legacy building, uh, the value of what we do, the meaningfulness of what we do. And the, the, before I say a word of my own in the sermon, I, I want to put before you um, a, a ministry that this church founded, Christ Presbyterian Church. And, and this ministry has everything to do with what we're talking about today. And if I could be so bold, it has everything to do with all of us in this room because it has to do with work. So these are, these are words from the Nashville Institute for Faith and Works vision statement, and I want to read these kind of as a way of, of getting into this passage today. So this is what the NIFW vision statement says. The Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is dedicated to helping individuals and groups integrate their Christian faith into their day-to-day work in a way that brings about human and organizational flourishing in Nashville and beyond. Considering that the average American will spend over 80,000 hours at work over his or her lifetime, it is important to view the workplace as an opportunity to renew individual hearts, communities, and the world. Some are energized by work, while others deplore it. Some see it only as a source of income, while others see it as a source of self-definition and glorification. Understanding and embracing that all good work, not just ministerial, missionary, medical, or nonprofit, matters to God is fundamental to joining Him in His redemptive plan for this world. I wanted to read that because I want you to know that NIFW is, is doing some really good work in this, in this city, and also because the application I'm going to make at the end of the sermon they just made in the last sentence of that statement, and it's this, that Part of the value and the meaning of our work is in joining God and His redemptive plan for this world. So that's the application we're going to land with. 
But I wanted you to just have it out of the gate. Because what I don't want is as we talk about this passage, for us to assume, oh, this is the sermon where we talk about how work is meaningless. It's not. It's just that the meaning we often try to get out of our work is a fool's errand. Uh, Work is not meant to justify our existence on earth. So, let's get into it. Several years ago, I lived in Kansas City, my family lived in Kansas City, and we had this back deck uh, on our house, and it had some stairs that went down into our little fenced-in yard where the kids would play. And our kids noticed that there were hornets that had built a nest under the railing of the stairs, right? And as a dad, I don't want my kids to be afraid of nothing, right? And so I tell them, they're in the backyard, I'm like, hey, could you go into the house and get something? And they're like, no, there's hornets. And they, they wanted to go like around the house and in through the front door to avoid the hornet's nest. And I told my son, whenever I tell an illustration about my kids, by the way, I ask them in advance if it's okay. And if they veto it, then it doesn't happen. But I, they said, yeah, you can, you can do that. But my son said, you remember what happened? And I was like, ah, no, I mean, you just, I know you went around. And he said, that's because, that's because you, you made me take those stairs one time. And I got stung three times. Sounds, sounds right, now that he mentions it. I, I had forgotten about that. Um, but, yeah. But then I took the hornet nest out, right? I sprayed it with that awesome, awesome spray that you get that goes 20 feet and knocked it down. But my kids would not really want to take those stairs for the rest of the summer. They just wanted to avoid them. Why? Well, because that way danger lies, right? That's treacherous. That's, I'm going to get stung if I do that. I tell you that to say the book of Ecclesiastes is a lot like that staircase. If you take the stairs, you might get stung. If you lean into the truths of what Ecclesiastes is telling you, from time to time it's going to sting, it's going to hurt. But what this whole book is doing is saying, go up the stinging stairs because you need to see from the landing. You need to get up past that danger and see things from the perspective of what is true and of what is good. Now, if you're anything like me, you have to really think about that because we, we like to avoid anything that would cause us pain. Today's passage is one of them, and it's one of those passages that just applies to every last person in the room because all of us work. Even if you're a kid, you do homework, right? We work. Sometimes we're paid for the work, sometimes we're not. Some of us work an obscene number of hours a week, some of us are part-time. But everybody works in some capacity or or another, and so this, this, uh, just follow me in this. Listen, take the stinging stairs with me, all of you, because this passage is about the meaning of our work. And really it's about the meaning of our legacies, which for many of us is the reason why we work is I want to leave some kind of lasting legacy in the world that will justify my time having been here. Today's message comes in two parts. The first part is we're going to take the stinging stairs up what the text says about work under the sun. So this is the work just, if we were all just secular humanists living under a biodome and we were just kind of doing our thing and trying to make ourselves matter in some way or another without any thought toward God, we have to, we're going to walk through that what this passage says about that. And this text speaks into the attempts that we make to build legacies as entrepreneurs, as artists, 
as parents, spouses, politicians, ministers, builders, doctors, lawyers, scholars, engineers, people who are just indispensable contributors to the conversations of our age and expertise. And then in part two, we're going to come up to the landing, having climbed these stinging stairs. We're going to get up to the landing and look at what Scripture concludes about the value of our work under heaven. The biodome is gone. There is no ceiling. God is now the optimum mover in this, and we're working unto Him, which reminds us of a legacy that is already ours, a legacy that the communion table reminds us of. So to get to part two, though, we have to go up the stairs of part one. We have to be willing to be stung by the truths of these words. We have to be willing to loosen our grip on our pride and the need for recognition And we have to look at what this passage says about our work under the sun. And so part one, our work under the sun. This is from Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 23. The writer of this book has been working his way through all of these things that we look to for meaning in life, wealth, wisdom, pleasure, and now work. And what he's concluded is, yeah, none of these things deliver significance on their own. They don't. And so out of the gate, in verse 20, the writer, having looked at work, turns his heart over to despair. He says, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Why? Why did he give his heart up to despair? Well, some passages in Ecclesiastes can be tough to decipher. This isn't one of them. You just read it. He said, the reason is because we can work our whole lives at something. We can be the most conscientious honest, disciplined, skilled worker that there is, but eventually we have to hand it over to somebody else, the whole thing. And you don't have any control over what happens after that, none. And when we hand something over, we hand it over to somebody who did not do the work we did. And so it won't matter to them in the ways that it mattered to us. And the nightmare scenario is what if the person who benefits from my labor never even comes close to assigning it all of the significance that I gave it? And one of the things this passage is wanting us to to hear and be stung by is the reality that, yeah, they're not going to care about it the way you did. They just aren't. A quick word of caution before we get any further in this is there is a way around this passage so you don't have to take the stinging stairs and you can just moralize what's being said here. And I've seen it done. I even saw it in some commentaries that I read about this passage where there was an interpretation of it that I thought, well, that's not helpful. That's not helpful to understanding. See, when my kids avoided the stairs, it was to avoid the sting because the the long way around at least gave them that comfort. And we're like that. We're tempted to want an indirect, easy solution over the hard, true issue that's in front of us. And one of the things that we might be tempted to do with a passage like this is to say, ah, this is a text that really is a good, strong warning about becoming a workaholic. You shouldn't become a workaholic. Listen, I don't think you should become a workaholic, but this passage is not to workaholics. This passage is not about the clock. It's not about how many hours you work. It's about all work. So whether you work 80 hours a week or you work five, 
This passage is about all of it. Not just that. Because see, if it's just about workaholism, there's an easy fix. We can just work less and we can say, ah, see, I've done it. I've worked less. We can inspire ourselves. We can put little pictures on our desk that say things like, no one writes on their gravestone, I wish I had worked more. Or nobody ever saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And we can say, I've learned the moral of the story. But that doesn't sting quite like, hey, listen, everything you do, no matter how noble it seems to you, is in play here. No matter how uh, in the service of the ministry of the Lord it is, is in play here. Because this passage isn't about how much we work. It's about all work, which means this passage is for all of us. And so I'm asking us, let's just all take these stairs together and just get stung (laughs) I want to break the passage down. Verse 18 through 23, there's this word toil that gets used. That word in verse 18, toil, what it refers to is daily responsibilities. So the things we do every day, our work, the work that we go to, the work, the jobs, the tasks, all of that, it's our work. And the writer observes, look, we're all going to reach a point where that work is either going to cease or we're going to have to leave it to somebody else. And we're not just going to have to leave it to somebody else. We're going to have to relinquish it. We're going to have to hand it over. And then what happens when we do that? Well, it might continue to thrive. It might hold steady and just kind of be what it was and never anything better. Or it might just catastrophe, might collapse in on itself. I tried to make a word up. I couldn't do it. It might just collapse in on itself, right? And you'll just, and you may even live to see the rubble. You may even live to see it and say, what were you thinking? Here's the thing, regardless of what happens to it, you will have no control over it. Sometimes the person who comes in, you you leave it, you hand it over. Sometimes the person who takes your place, they just lack knowledge, they lack skill, they lack vision. Verse 21 alludes to this idea that they're just not the craftsman you were, they're not the artist you were. Sometimes that person lacks wisdom. Consider King Solomon. He, he may have written this. He may not have. There's discussion on who wrote Ecclesiastes. But even if he isn't the author of this book, his story reflects the futility that these verses are speaking to. Because Solomon, King Solomon, he was a builder, right? He's known for being a builder. He's known for building a kingdom that kings and queens from other nations would come just to just to behold the splendor of what Solomon had made. I mean, even in Jesus' day, they were talking about it. Jesus talks about the flowers of the field, and he talks about how they're more glorious than the most glorious thing that people talked about at that time, which was what? The glory of Solomon's splendor. Let me ask you a question. For how many generations did the glory and splendor of Solomon's kingdom remain? Less than one. Less than one. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over after Solomon died. He was Solomon's successor. Before the end of his reign, he made political decisions that caused the kingdom of Israel to divide into two. 
and Solomon lost, or no, Rehoboam lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel before he died. If you want to read the story, it's fascinating. It's 1 Kings 12. It's an amazing account that you look at and you think things haven't really changed that much. It'll also make you cringe. Less than one generation. And it was all undone. Look, we're going to hand everything over. What do we get from worrying about it? Because it's the way it is. What do we get from worrying about it? Well, the writer says, here's what you get. Verse 23 says you get, for worrying about it, you get days that are filled with sorrow. You get vexation. You get frustration. You get a heart that can't rest. You get a body that can't sleep. So, have you felt the sting so far? Let's go a little deeper. I want to paint the picture so that we can get a an image in our head of this maybe more today's time of, of what's being said here about our toil and what will come of it. Because what Ecclesiastes is saying here is a lot like something you might see on an HGTV home improvement show. If you're anything like me, I, that, that's kind of the channel my TV's on uh, unless I decide to watch something else. But just let's go there for a second. You, I'm going to tell you a story about you. You love carpentry. You love carpentry. You have since, you, since your earliest memory, you've loved it. You've loved the differences in different kinds of woods. You've loved the, the mechanics, the math that goes into it, the craftsmanship. You love the smell of fresh cut lumber. Since the time you were a kid, you saved your money to buy tools and wood instead of American Girl dolls and video games. Your parents, they just knew, this, we're fighting a losing battle, let's just, let's just give you half the garage and you can have your workspace out there. You love getting splinters. You, you love it. You feel like, yes, I'm really in it now. And so you've worked at carpentry, and then you've started specializing in cabinetry. You love cabinetry. You can make a wall of cabinets without a single piece of metal except for the hinge. You can make the dovetail joints. You can do mortise and tenon. You know how to use dowels and glue and how to put things together in a way that's even stronger than using nails. And you've perfected this. And you grow up and you buy a house. And around the time you buy the house, the old white oak in the back 40 of your grandparents' lot falls and you, you have part of that old tree that you used to climb as a kid milled and you store that wood in just the right way in your garage, and you wait for it to reach the perfect humidity level. And then you build cabinets for your house, and they're beautiful. They're just perfect. And you make a whole wall of them. And you look at them with a kind of pride that's inaccessible to anybody else. Only you can tap into it. Why? Because nobody knows the trouble that you put into making those things. And then... You have to move. And so you put the house on the market. And a couple of 20-somethings and a realtor come in, and they're looking around your house, and they say something like, this house has really good bones. It's outdated. Uh, we kind of want it to have more of an open concept. One of them looks at your wall of cabinets and says, well, those are going to have to go. And nobody even replies to that comment because everybody already knows those have to go. 
the sail goes through, and some guy you've never met with a sledgehammer and a bologna sandwich <laughs> knocks out your cabinets, the entire wall of them. And why? The reason he knocks out your cabinets is because the people who took your place said, do you know what would be an improvement over that wall of cabinets? Having nothing there, that would be an improvement. This is the futility we're talking about, right? Somebody else is going to take possession of the work that kept you up at night, and it's very likely that the things that kept you up at night will never even cross their minds. So tomorrow's Monday. Have a great day at work. <laughs> and if that isn't enough of a sting, let me take us to even one more hornet that wants to land on our arm, okay? What if expecting somebody to care as deeply as you did about that wall of cabinets? What if expecting somebody to care as deeply about your life's work as you do? What if that's actually vanity? What if it's not an injustice, but it's just the way things work? Because after lamenting the sorrow and the sense of futility and the lost sleep, the author concludes this too, this, lamp, this lament over the way it is, that's also vanity. What's vanity? Well, expecting others to revere the work we've done. Let's be honest. We all want others to appreciate our work. We want them to see the cabinets and we want them to explain, now those are beautiful. Those must have taken a lot of hard work. I can't even imagine all the problem solving that you had to do to get those things to be just the way that they are. We should preserve them. We should preserve them as art. But we know the odds of that happening are very rare. Or maybe we're young enough that we don't know that the odds of that are very rare. Between services, a friend of mine told me a story about a major corporation in town, and a group of young VPs all got on an elevator together, and as the elevator was going down, one of them joked, man, if this elevator broke loose, this company would be ruined. And from the back of the, elder, uh, back of the elevator, there was an elderly man who said, actually, they would replace us all in two days. And we know that's right. That's how it works. So it's rare for someone to care that much about what we do under the sun. Ask yourself, how do we know this is rare? Well, do you revere the work of others to the degree you wish they would revere your work? If you do, you're an exception. The fact is most of us see right past the cabinets to the open floor plan they obstruct, and we think things like, once that gets out of the way, then I'll be able to do my thing. It never crosses our mind to give anyone else's work that much thought. And so to want others to do that with our work, he's saying, that's vanity. Scott often says, hundred years from now, all new people. This passage, you know, if you don't believe me, let me just do a quick little experiment here. 
Have you ever heard the name Ernest Poole? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, Ernest Poole um, won the first Pulitzer for fiction less than 100 years ago. Have you ever heard the, the name Emil Jannings? No? First Oscar for Best Actor. Janet Gaynor? First Oscar for Best Actress. One. Jean-Henri Dinant. Anyone? Winner of the first Nobel Peace Prize. We move on. So, part two, our work under heaven. Why take these stinging stares if this is what we have to endure? Do you think that the writer is writing these things because he's like, I just want to wear you down. <laughs> I just want to break your spirit before you go to work tomorrow. No, he's calling us up to the landing. He's saying, you got to walk through this. You got to see it. You have to believe it because you don't want to. You want to believe that you can just take the circuitous route and it'll be all the same. But he's calling us, no, no, no. Come up to the landing and see things from a perspective that is beyond what this world values. Because if we only see our work as a means to establishing a legacy and thus justifying our time on earth, then we are going to be left wanting. And so what is up on that landing? Well, the author concludes this. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw, he said, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Some of us do work that we enjoy. Not all of us do. Some of us do work that we don't enjoy. And we do it because we need to work to live. Most of us end up with, in our life, seasons of both. Seasons where I loved my job and seasons where I really didn't like my job, but I needed a job. And so I did this work. And the, and the counsel he's giving is he's saying, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. In other words, be where you are. Do the thing that's in front of you. Enjoy the thing that's in front of you. And if it's hard to do that, then at least enjoy what the thing in front of you affords. Because you can't justify your existence through what you do. But the ability to enjoy the fruit of our labor, that is a gift from the hand of God, he says. Well, how is that a gift from the hand of God? Well, first, if our work will not create lasting legacies, then we are free from having to go to work every day trying to build a lasting legacy. You just don't even have to do that. I don't need to look at my vocation as the most valuable part of me. Full disclosure, I am the world's biggest hypocrite right now. I, I, I wrestle with this. I'm an author. I write books. I talk a really good game of, well, I just want the Lord to use him as he sees fit. I hope that what he sees fit is to sell a lot of them. <laughs> so far, he has not seen fit to do that. I receive that as a gift from his hand. But I will tell you, I'm telling you that to say, look, I, I, from the time I started writing a sermon about this passage, I was like, I see what it's saying. I don't functionally live out what it's saying. 
And I also want to tell you that the process of writing a sermon about it didn't bring me around. I still wrestle with this. I still wrestle with what am I going to give to the world that will be lasting, that people will look at and say, we're so glad. Emil Jennings was here. I want to unwrap this gift a little bit more. If we can't look at our work to justify our existence, or if we can't look at pleasure for that, or wealth, or wisdom, or power, then we have to look someplace else. Because the one thing that we can't shake is the fact that life does have meaning. We know it. We know it. You know how much work it takes to convince yourself that it doesn't? That's not the default any of us starts with. We may go through pain. We may go up the stinging stairs and be stung so many times. We say, I am not ever going to do that again. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm just going to say there's nothing up there. But it takes a lot of work to do that. We know that life has meaning. And our text is not saying life is meaningless or work is meaningless. It's quite the opposite. In fact, it's acknowledging life is filled with meaning. What Ecclesiastes is saying is, look, the meaning, though, is not in the work. So keep looking. In your search for meaning, look past the things we do under the sun. If the peace and contentment and significance that we seek lies beyond this world, then that brings a deeper significance to the things we do in this world, because it's not just for what's happening under the biodome. Well, how? Well, if the thing that gives my life meaning and justifies my existence lies beyond the work of my own hands, if it lies beyond my greatest successes and my most catastrophic failures, if it lies with God who then gives me work to do, then I can do that work as unto Him who already knows me and who already loves me. And not only that, who has already given me a legacy. I never have to spend a single day working to create a version of myself for others to know and love. I can trust that I am already known and I am already loved, and then I can work for the sake of others. This is a gift because it means we can apply then the two greatest commands to our work. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm working to create a lasting legacy for me that people will revere, then I am not working as unto the Lord. I'm not loving him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength in my work. And I'm really not even thinking about my neighbor who I'm called to love with all my heart, to, to love, love as myself. This is the landing beyond the stinging stairs, is to say, what does it look like to work in such a way that you are fulfilling the two greatest commands to love God with your work and love your neighbor? not just to justify your existence. What's the value of our work under heaven? What's the view from the landing? This is the question we have to ask because the text concludes, for to the one who pleases God, he has given him knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting. In other words, if your working is unto the Lord, you see the meaning beyond what's under the biodome. And if you're not working unto the Lord, then it quickly can become work that just feels kind of menial, like all I do is just put things in piles, and then somebody comes and takes away the pile, and I make another pile. 
But to the one who pleases God, he gives wisdom, he gives knowledge, he gives joy, he gives perspective. And we can look at our work as an extension of his work. As NIFW's vision statement says, understand and embrace all good work, not just ministerial, missionary, medical, and nonprofit matters to God and is fundamental to joining him in his redemptive plan for the world. That's why we work, to join God in his redemptive plan for the world, to be where we are and to do what's in front of us. I'm sure that you're as shaken and as upset as I am by what happened in Florida in that school this past week. It's utterly heartbreaking. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to know that our children are learning active shooter drills in school. As a parent, when things like this happen, I'm reminded of something that Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, something that he said once about tragedies that is powerful. He said this, he said, I was spared from any great disasters when I was little, but there was plenty of news of them in the newspapers and on the radio, and there were graphic images of them in newsreels. For me, as for all children, the world could have come to seem a scary place to live. There was something my mother said, or my mother did, that I've always remembered. Always look for the helpers, she'd tell me. There's always someone who is trying to help. I did, and I came to see that the world is full of doctors and nurses and police and firemen and volunteers and neighbors and friends who are ready to jump in to help when things go wrong. Look for the helpers. Our work under heaven has value. It has value because when we work with God's redemptive plan for this world, we begin to see things differently. We begin to see that the person who pushes a broom isn't just pushing a broom. They're pushing back the darkness and decay of the fall. They're bringing order to where there was persistent disorder. The teacher in the classroom isn't just working through a set of curriculum. They're forming and shepherding young hearts. The artist isn't just making merchandise to sell. They're working to contribute truth and goodness and beauty to a world that needs all three. The person in the food service industry is helping people enjoy the gifts of God, the very good gifts of food and drink. And the list goes on and on. In every good vocation, we have the opportunity to help push back the darkness for the people we live among, to help right here, right now. And that matters. This should all sound pretty familiar to the believer in Christ because the heart of this text is really the heart of the gospel. And that message is this. Receive the legacy you've already been given and don't worry about trying to make one. Receive the legacy you've been given as the beloved co-heir of God in Christ. Don't try to achieve a legacy for yourself. It won't last. You already have one anyway. That's way better than anything that you could come up with. So work is unto the Lord. Not trying to earn His favor, but because you believe that as His child, you're already part of His redemptive plan for the world. This communion table is a statement about the legacy of work. It's the finished work of Christ. And it tells us that we never need to spend a single day of our lives trying to get God to love us 
or trying to hope that there's meaning behind our existence. Because what did Jesus say? He said, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did in order that we would be co-heirs with him in the kingdom of God for all eternity. That's the gospel. You are free from having to work to make a legacy that will be revered by other people because you are loved and known by the one who made you and who calls you his heir in Christ. Pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that the Bible is not a collection of inspirational sayings to make us feel good when we're feeling down, but that it is confrontational, that it can sting sometimes to look at the truth, to receive the truth of what's being said, because what's being said is not just hollow philosophy. It's a reality of what it means to live in relationship with you. Thank you for the gift of the communion table, which reminds us of our legacy, our eternal one, the one that matters. Father, give us a renewed sense of purpose in the work that we do. Help us to be where we are, to be present, and to work as unto you. For the glory of your name, it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.